Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. This is now my happy space, so all that other stuff that happens and the stresses that come from that uh, can be a bit overwhelming at times, but uh, this is what I enjoy to do. This is what God has given me a passion for. I don't know if I'm any good at it or not, but I love opening God's Word, and I pray that you benefit from it. And I know you will, uh, simply because it's not anything to do with me, but it's to do with God. And so open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We have a large passage this morning. Um, Oh, see, I have myself a note right here. I should clarify something before I get get on a roll. I I put out this outline. I'm trying to be more helpful uh, for you as as we go through these studies and give you a little bit of an outline and kind of what we're doing and maybe some other things to think about. But I, 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 I just printed this outline out. I just typed it out really quick, and I didn't proofread it. And I see the application. I could have probably done it differently, but I do want to make one correction on that, just in case you pay attention to these. It says, we are not saved by our good works, nor are we condemned when we fail to live to God's standards. That should be failed to live to the law's standards. We always want to live to God's standards. And so I don't want you reading that and saying, what? What are you saying? Uh, And so just make that one correction there if you like. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through verse 20. God's inspired and inerrant, infallible and sufficient word reads, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. There's no righteous person, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks out God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And they have not known the way of peace. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be closed and that all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, none of mankind will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. Father, we would ask a blessing upon your word. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would illuminate this text for us, not only so that we can understand it, but so that we know how to apply it. And so, Father, I invite you to take over my mind and my thoughts. Father, we want to hear from you and only you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've titled this sermon this morning, which you have the outline there in front of you, and no worries, we're not going to be able to cover this many passages, but since I already said we're going to, I'm going to be gone for three Sundays, and I don't want to make it two parts uh, a month apart, and so we're just going to kind of cover it all here uh, this morning quickly and briefly. But I've called this radical corruption. Today we come to the summation, if you will, of 
Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It was a long section. Romans chapter 1, verses 18, all the way through Romans chapter 3, verse 20. And it was all about this idea that Jews and Greeks, no one and everyone is under sin. And then starting in three weeks, we're going to get to the justification of faith alone, and that'll be a glorious turn of the corner, if you will. But Paul here is teaching a truth that all people are indeed sinners. And in these opening three chapters of Romans, Paul is setting forth the universal need for the gospel. All have a need of the gospel because all, without exception, are sinners. The Gentiles are sinners. They have disobeyed God's law, even though they did not have the law as it was presented to God's chosen people through Moses. And as we've seen, Romans chapter 1, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived being understood by what has been made, so they are without excuse. With or without the law, creation itself points all people to God, therefore all people are without excuse. The Jews are sinners. They have great advantage in all that they have been given as they were given a supernatural revelation, as God personally and specifically handed the law to Moses and then to the people. As we've seen in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, what advantage does the Jew have? Great in every respect. First, they were entrusted with the actual words of God. And yet, having the law only, having the word of God only, will not save and cannot save anyone. The law must be kept to perfection. One theologian, J. Gresham Machen, he put it like this. The light of the gospel in the teaching of Paul stands out always against the dark background of a race universally lost to sin. To fully appreciate the brilliance of a diamond, what does the jeweler do? The jeweler places that diamond, lays that diamond upon a black velvet cloth. It is against this black velvet cloth, this backdrop, that the diamond is fully understood, that the brilliance of that diamond is truly it, uh, revealed and seen. It is against this backdrop of the sin nature that we had, this radical corruption within us, that the beauty, that the brilliance of the gospel shines its brightest. But before we can embrace the gospel, we must understand and accept the depth of our radical corruption. Total depravity, if you like. Radical corruption is a better terminology for it. But you have heard many times, you've heard me say, it is not good enough to know what you believe. You've got to know what, what, why you believe it, right? It's not good enough to know. Every single one of us knows what we believe. Every single one. Whatever the topic, whatever the issue, if it's biblical or not biblical, it doesn't really matter. I know exactly what I believe. The challenge comes in trying to articulate or explain or understand, why do I hold to that belief? Why do I have that understanding? I'm a firm believer in, in trying to decide and discern and study and seek the why for every what. And this week, I must say, I was challenged a bit as I read through Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. 
there's, there, the, in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, and you may want to turn here. We're going to spend just a little bit of time there because, like I said, I'm just giving you the overview of, of really the verses before us. Um, I'm kind of giving you the introduction to the sermon, and the sermon will never come. <laughs> um, but if we go back to Genesis chapter 2, in Genesis chapter 2, I just want to look at a couple verses as we think of this radical corruption. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says this, And then Yahweh God took man, put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to tend it. God put man in the garden on purpose and for purpose, and it wasn't just to lay around in a hammock or something like that. It was to tend and to cultivate this garden. Verse 16, Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, From the tree of the garden, from every tree of the garden, from any of the tree of the garden, you may freely eat. But, here comes a condition, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For, guard, carrying forward what just came, on the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. Right? And so what do you see in these couple verses? You see the what? What is the what? that you can, you can have from, eat from any of these trees that you want to eat. You can eat from every single one of it. But there was a condition, again, of what? You cannot eat from this one specific tree. All the trees you can eat from, but this one tree, you cannot eat from this tree. Eat from any tree except the one. Why? <laughs> right? I mean, that's what I would ask. Why? Well, it says it in verse 17b. Because if you eat of this one tree you will certainly, or maybe your translation says surely, you will certainly, you will surely die. That's the why. The what? Don't eat from any of the trees. The why? Because you will die. Why? Why? I mean, if I take a bite of this fruit, is it going to blow up? If I take a bite from this fruit, is it poison? If I take a bite from this fruit, is there a sniper somewhere and it's going to take me out? I mean, I know that's ridiculous, right? But this is how my mind works sometimes. You ought to be with me through the week. Um, but why will I die? Isn't, isn't that a good question? I mean, God says, don't eat of any of these trees. Well, then, what? God, come on. You know the tree that I'm going to want to eat from. Or maybe that's just me. You can eat from every single tree, but not that one. And if you do, you will die. And this is my problem. Why? Can the Bible, does the Bible, does God tell me why I will die if I eat from that tree? Maybe. Somewhat. Somewhat of an answer. Flip the page to Genesis chapter 3. If you go to Genesis chapter 3 in verse 7, we already know the rest of the story, right? Adam and Eve did indeed take a bite from that tree or the fruit of that tree. Verse 7, after they took a bite, they took a bite. It didn't explode or anything like that. But it said, then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized that they were naked and they did what? They were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, which, by the way, God does have a dress code because God said that's not good enough and killed an animal and covered them with skins, but that's a side issue. So, so they sewed these fig leaves together 
because they were naked. They realized, they, up at that point, they didn't know that they, they were naked. Now, when we think of nakedness today in our culture, I mean, we have an obsession with the human body today, I think, and probably all cultures did to somewhat, but that's not necessarily what's being spoken of here. Nakedness in this context, and while we must understand what Moses, what God, the words God gave Moses to write for us, what, what is meant, there was a shame associated with this nakedness. There was an uncleanness that was associated with this nakedness that they didn't know. They didn't know that until they ate of that fruit, and that fruit then revealed this knowledge to them. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 22. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, man has become one of us. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here we see the Trinity, right? Plural. Man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now he might reach out his hand with take the fruit also from the tree of life, different tree, from the tree of life, and eat and live forever. What was the result of eating the fruit? The result of eating the fruit was knowledge. Now they had a revelation. Now they seen something in a way that they had not been revealed to them before. Something was revealed to them. God said, don't eat of that tree because when you eat of that tree, you will die. They ate of that tree. They did not instantly die, but eventually we obviously know everyone does die. But there was a knowledge that they gained from that tree by eating it. So let's think about that for a moment. Eating of the tree was not in and of itself obviously wrong. I mean, of course, God commanded it, but I mean, outside of that, I mean, was there something, was the tree poisonous? No, it wasn't poisonous. So, so there was nothing necessarily wrong with the, the tree itself. The command not to eat of it was not reinforced by any instinct that man and woman had. It's not like they seen this tree with all kinds of, you know, um, thorns on it and say, man, I grabbed that fruit. It's going to cut my hand. There was nothing obviously wrong with that tree. So there was nothing there for them to say, well, I shouldn't eat it because, oh, it looks like it's a poisonous fruit. I shouldn't eat it because it's got thorns and thistle. No, nothing of that. Listen, it seems as though the command not to eat of the tree was a sheer test of obedience. That's, that's it. That's what we have to take away from this passage. The whole point was God was testing Adam and Eve, and Adam specifically, are you going to listen to me? Are you going to follow my commands? Would man obey God's commands only when he understood the why? I need to understand before I get in line with about anything. It's a bad trait that I have. <laughs> or would he? Would Adam and Eve obey simply knowing that they are God's commands and therefore a just and holy God has reason to give the command even though I do not know the why? Adam and Eve had one simple command. That's it. Don't eat of that tree. They ate of that tree. And their, listen, listen, listen now, their free will choice. Their free will choice 
ended drastically, devastating, that free will choice that God gave Adam and Eve. Why do you think, why do I think that I would have chosen differently if I would have been Adam? Why do you think that you would have chose differently if you were Eve or Adam? The bite of fruit cannot be unbitten. The picked fruit cannot be unpicked. It's been bitten. It's been picked. Let's transition just a bit. The law cannot be ungiven. I know that's a huge jump. But just as the fruit could not be unbit, and just as the fruit could not be placed back onto that tree, the law of God was given. The law of God could not be ungiven. Therefore, we, as in all people, we are under this law. doesn't matter if we like it, if we don't like it. The law has been given. We are under this law. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all mankind. Why? Because all have sinned. This is where we get the doctrine of original sin. I know we're getting kind of weighty this morning, but this is where we get the doctrine of original sin. There was a British monk made named Pelagius. Now, Pelagius did not believe in the doctrine of original sin. He taught that everyone, including my little grandbaby, who is about perfect, and I know Joshua is too, um, but, but he's taught that every single person has been born like Adam and Eve and that you had the ability and that I had the ability to make that free will choice to sin or not sin. So just as Adam and Eve were the only folks who were born, who were, actually they weren't even born, right? They were created by God. They had the choice. Do I take a bite from this apple? Where do we get apple from? I think it's an insult to apples. You have a choice to take a bite of this fruit or not take a bite of this fruit. Everyone after that, because of Adam, we have made the same choice. We, on Adam, on our behalf, if we like it or not, has eaten the fruit, has made that free will choice for each and every one of us. And so this Pelagius, he obviously goes directly against Scripture. Because every single one of us is born with this sin nature, with born radically corrupt. Every single one. Adam and Eve were the only ones, sinless ones, who had this choice. And the first people who represent all people chose to sin. And we could say chose to sin on our behalf. Why? I don't know. It's what the Bible teaches. It's what it says. Let's briefly get into our outline this morning. See there, point number one I have is the charge. Everything's judicial, it seems like, with Paul. Point one is the charge. All human beings are under the power of sin. Look at verse 9. 
Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. Who's that speaking of? Uh, Jewish people uh, specifically, but also we could say in our context today, all Christian people. Are Christian people better than non-Christian people? Paul would say, not at all. We would say, not at all. Verse 9. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, all people, Americans and non-Americans, Mennonites and non-Mennonites, whatever we are, I don't know what we are, whatever it is, we are all and everyone is under this sin. This is the charge. All are under sin and all have been found to be radically corrupt. Now, let me just stop for just a moment. When we talk about somebody being radically corrupt or someone or, or total depravity, whichever one you prefer to use, it doesn't mean that there's nothing good within you. Of course, there's common grace spread upon all people. And there's some very, very good people that are atheistic in their thinking. And they can be maybe sometimes some of the, the nicest people. So that's not what we're saying. We're not saying that a person is totally morally corrupt. What we're saying is that the nature that we have within us is totally and completely from birth, from creation, is against God, against God. And so total or radical corruption does not mean that there's nothing good within a person, and so that we must understand first when we think about the charts. Let's move along quickly. The evidence. Point two, the evidence. We'll spend a little more time here. No one is righteous. All engage in sinful behavior. Verses 10 through 18 is where we see this long liturgy almost, if you will, <clears throat> of this evidence that Paul is laying out here. But, but I, I do want you to notice something, uh, and that is in verse 10. How does verse 10 start? How does verse 10 start? Sometimes we look over these little things. It starts as, as it is written. I love that. As it is written. I have a, a, a preacher friend of mine. He probably doesn't know we're friends, but we are. Um, uh, but, but, but he likes to say, and I remember, I remember him and I were private messaging here a little bit on this a couple years back when it kind of all blew up nationally. But it was kind of interesting because he was like, and part of his whole spiel was that I don't say the Bible says. We should stop saying the Bible says because there's so many people, they don't believe the Bible to start with. And so the millennials, the Gen Zers, the young people of the, of the world are going to say, I'm out, I'm done. I don't believe the Bible anyways. So that's not what we say. Now, he likes to say it's ancient documents. Yeah, whatever. Uh, ancient documents, the Bibles. But this is, and I, and, I, and I thought, you know what, Andy, that's a good point. I like that. He says, I don't say the Bible says, but I say Matthew says, Mark says, Luke says, John says, Peter says, James says, Jews says. And I thought, I kind of like that. I'm going to roll with that. But I don't stick with anything for too long. And as I thought through that, and I got to thinking, it's like, you know what? I really don't care <laughs> what Matthew says or Mark says, or Luke says, or John says, or Peter says, or Jude says, or James says, or whoever wrote Hebrews says. I don't really care. I care what God says. Therefore, Paul, I'm with Paul. The Bible says, as it is written, Paul goes right back to Scripture. And that's what we must do. It doesn't matter what I think or what I say or what any of these biblical writers say. It matters what God says, and it matters is, do I believe that these men wrote inspirationally, wrote along as the Holy Spirit 
gave them this knowledge and this information. Do we believe that or do we not? I don't care who wrote it. Do we believe it as God's word? Paul does. I'm with Paul, I guess. These are the words of God. As it is written, Paul says, there's no one righteous, not even one person. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks out God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Now, you have a cross-reference Bible. I, I trust that you do, and you can follow that for yourself. Most of these are going to come from the psalm, where Paul is quoting the psalm and making his point here with these things. And Paul pretty much lays it out. No, 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 no. Begins with not even one. He ends with not even one. And you may be pushing back already and say, especially when it comes to the last point, as I did, like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What do you mean there's no one that seeks God? Okay, I understand no one is righteous. I cannot say, no, there's no one that understands to a degree. I understand that. But no one seeks God? I don't know about that. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Philippians 2.21. For all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. And I can hear that argument and say, yeah, but people do seek and search out of God. People do do that. And so I want to turn to maybe some place that a, 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 a passage of Scripture, a passage of Scripture that you may yourself have quoted often. We often hear it, especially this time of the year, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. What does it say? Quote it for me. Jeremiah 29, 11. Right. We know that, right? And don't we love to do that? Don't we love to pick a scripture, pluck it out, especially the Old Testament. We love to do that with the Old Testament. Pluck it out of scripture and then just use it however we want to use it. Let's put it back in its context and see what it says, right? So Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. For this is what Yahweh says. When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, you see the people are in exile for 70 years. They were taken out of Jerusalem, and they were taken down to Babylon. Remember, how are we supposed to play songs for you? We're outside the temple. Here we sit under these tree alongside the riverbanks. What is that, Psalm 139 or something? I don't know the song. But right, I can't play. I can't worship Yahweh outside of my temple. This is it right here. So this is what Yahweh says. When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you. Who? I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place, back to Jerusalem, back to this relationship with myself. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares Yahweh. Plans for prosperity. That's not prosperity. It should be better translated salvation. Plans for salvation and not for disaster. I'm going to save you. I'm not going to destroy you. Where am I at? Here we go. To give you a future and a hope. Verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. Verse 13. And you will seek me, and you will find me when you search me with all your heart. Verse 14. I will let myself be found by you, declares Yahweh. 
I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares Yahweh. And I will bring you back to this place from where I have sent you into exile. Who sent them into exile? The evil nation? No, God. Who will reach out to them? Will they reach out to God first? No. God will visit them. I will visit you. I myself will let you find me. It all starts with God. The whole reason that they're going to seek and search out God and pray to God is because God is going to first call upon them. Everything starts with God. God initiates everything. The whole reason that you want to seek God, the whole reason that you want to pray to God is because he has given you that desire. That desire does not come from within you. It is given to you by God. Without God's intervention, we do not seek God rightly. Oh, I don't know about that. I think you're off, Pastor. I think you're way whacked. I know these all these seeker-friendly churches, it's all about seeking God. No, it's not. It's about seeking how you can have a good week next week. And I hope you can. It's all about seeking how can you find satisfaction, fulfillment in your job, in your marriage, in your life, in your family. Those are all fantastic things. That's not seeking God. Seeking God is seeking God even if I don't know the why. That's what God wants. We seek God if we're left to ourselves. We seek God for selfish reasons, for selfish motives. I seek God for what God can do for me. Maybe, maybe that's just me. I don't know. But I seek God when I need God's help. When life has fallen apart, when disaster has struck, God fix this. Often what happens, and, and often what happens in those moments, those desperate times where we cry out to God, we find and we reach a deeper relationship with God than we've ever had before. Not necessarily because God fixed whatever it is that we wanted him to fix, but that was the vehicle that was used. Turn, turn again. I told you this is just introduction. So turn again to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Because I know this whole idea of radical corruption, you know, I get pushed back on this a lot, but it's okay. It's what the Bible teaches. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, well, what does Paul write to the church at Ephesus? He says, and you were dead. Okay. We understand dead, right? So, so and you were dead in your offenses and sins. Now, this is not talking about physically dead. This is a spiritual death. This is spiritual dead in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too previously lived. Paul says, I was among the dead, even though I was the most religious person around. We walked in the lusts of our flesh and indulged in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of them, Paul said. We're just, we're just like the rest of them. But God, everything starts with God, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive 
with Christ. Can a, spiritually dead. We cannot make ourselves alive. It's only the work of God that anyone surrenders their life to Christ, that anyone comes to Christ. It is only through God. A dead man cannot help him or herself. It is only the work of Christ. We see also here at the end of this long narrative or this long list of Paul's quotations from what the, this is what the Bible says. There's no fear of God before their very eyes in verse 18. You know, we're reminded of that in Luke chapter 23, right, where the thief on the cross. Here you find these two fellows on the cross, one on each side of Jesus. One says, oh, Jesus, save yourself. And oh, yeah, oh, by the way, me too, <laughs> right? And the other one says, what? Do you not even fear God? We deserve what we got coming. This man is totally innocent. Here is a guy who's hanging upon a cross, who's seen Jesus crucified in the way that Jesus was crucified, and all he can think about is saving himself? That's a dead man, spiritually dead man. The other one, for whatever reason, God has decided to enlighten his heart and mind, and he recognized his depraved condition. He recognized the radical corruption with him, and he said, Jesus, remember me. Didn't say anything. Just remember me when you get into your kingdom. That is a heart that seeks God. Third is the verdict. The whole world is accountable to God, and I'm just going to skip over that. The whole world is accountable to God, and I hope we can at least agree on that point, that the whole world is indeed accountable to God. Number four, in closing, it's the logical conclusion in verse 20. Because of the works of the law, none of mankind will be justified in his sights, for through the law comes the knowledge or the recognition of sin. That is the logical conclusion of what is here. Listen, I just want you to hear it again. By the works of the law, none of mankind will be justified in his sight. Isn't that beautiful? That just struck me in a way this week that I never had before. In his sight, I am not justified how good I am because I'm bad. I am not justified because I decided to wake up a little extra early this morning and read my Bible. I am not bad because I decided I just don't have time to pray this morning. I am not bad because I decided I'm not going to go to church this morning. Though for all you who are not here, you are bad. <laughs> Strike that from the record. Um, see, I told you I'm bad. Right? There's nothing that you and I can do to earn our relationship with Christ. That's beautiful. I know the depth of my corruption. God knows the depth of my corruption. And yet, God chose to save me. God chose to call us. If you name the name of Christ, God chose to save you and to call you his son or daughter. Not because of what you have done. Not because of the penance that you have done. 
not because of the homeless that you have served, not because you've read the whole Bible uh, every day for the past 365 days. No, but in spite of my failure upon failure upon failure upon reaching for that apple, taking another bite, <laughs> realizing, holy smolies, I'm naked. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Isn't that beautiful? That's the gospel, my friends. Why did God choose to save me? Why did God choose to save you if you are saved? I don't know. I don't know. I trusted by faith. That's where we're going to go for the next couple chapters of Romans. Now, you may be asking, well, if I'm hearing you correctly, and you are, if I'm hearing you correctly, then how can I know God is seeking and calling me? Do you desire God? Is there anything within you that desires a right relationship, a relationship with your creator? Answer the call. Is there something within you that craves time and prayer and scripture reading with your creator? Answer the call. Have you heard that? Do you have a desire to have a relationship with your heavenly father? I would invite you, answer the call. God is seeking you. All we do is trust by faith alone in Christ alone. That's all we do. That's it. Nothing of my own. Isn't that beautiful? I'd mess it up for sure. Father, I thank you for the truths of your scripture, no matter how hard or how difficult or how challenging they can be. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for not being like the first man, not being like Adam. And yet you followed through with the instructions the Father gave you because the first man, I might as well put myself, because I messed up. I failed. Father, for Jesus, you done what I could not possibly do on my own behalf. Father, I pray this morning for everybody here. Father, I don't know where each person finds themselves this morning. Maybe they're so caught up in legalistic way of thinking that they don't even recognize it. Father, I pray that you would lift the burden of legalism off of their shoulders, that you would lift that from them. Father, I pray for the other side, for the other pendulum that swings to the other ditch in the road, if you will. Like on the other side, Lord, that is under so much guilt that may say, Lord, you can't possibly save someone such as me. Father, I pray that you would break that heart, that you would open that heart, that you would give that heart the courage to respond to you, that it is by faith alone in Christ alone. Father, I pray for each and every one that's here this morning. Lord, those of us who have walked maybe for you for years, and yet at times we need to wrestle with our own faith. Father, I pray that you would solidify in our minds once and for all, once again, that it's nothing that we have done that will save us. There's nothing that we will do that will keep us, that you have saved us. And that you will in keep that you will keep us, Father. I pray this in the name of Jesus.
Amen.